Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, April 21st, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going today? Meta, it's going pretty well, my man. Uh, excited for Earth Day tomorrow. Hell yeah. Hope everyone is just celebrating their Earth on uh, on Saturday. Uh, enjoy the day. Get outside. If it's nice out, probably won't be. Um, and yeah, have a great day. It's supposed to be pretty nice here, I think. Let me fact check myself. Yeah, 73, partly cloudy. Um, I will be outside all day. Nice. What are you doing? Uh, it's, uh, the first day for New York city club ultimate where like all the teams get together on Randall's Island and, and we play like a bunch of mini and pick up. Basically it's at the club sport or uh, club ultimate opener. It's called. So nice doing that for most of the day. Heck yeah, dude. That sounds great. Yeah. Hopefully it goes well, just like this episode's about to go. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Joshua Partlow of the Washington Post, who writes, water cuts could save the Colorado River. Farmers are in the crosshairs. If you're not familiar with the situation along the Colorado River, the short summary is as follows. The river is drying up and it's not able to replenish itself naturally. This is because at the time that the water rights were allocated over 100 years ago, the river was at an all-time high. People then consumed their allotted amount of water, which, again, was based off a number that the river was never really going to be able to hit consistently. So this led to overconsumption. This has put residents at odds with celebrities, commercial farmers, and even towns and cities as a whole. The Biden administration is now moving closer to imposing water cuts on each state. And 400 farms located in the Imperial Irrigation District appear to be one of the main target groups for decreasing consumption. The Colorado River is relied upon by 40 million people, and this group of farms that Nick just mentioned consumes the largest share of the river. For the farmers, they have some of the oldest legal rights to this water, and their water usage is part of a $4 billion industry that employs tens of thousands of people and produces vegetables in supermarkets across the U.S. throughout the winter. There's an ongoing dispute between California and other states along the Colorado River over how the water rights should be allocated. If they're strictly followed, the Imperial region should get priority, and cities like Los Angeles and Phoenix would have little to no water allotted. There were also talks last summer of cutting water usage across the board and paying farmers to use less water, but no agreement has come to this yet, and farmers generally believe that the compensation offered was not high enough. Since 2000, the Colorado River has experienced its driest period in over 100 years, and it's led to a 20% decrease in water flow. The authors quote a report from the White House that says, without action or a meaningful change in those trends, Colorado River reservoirs will continue to decline to critically low elevations, threatening essential water supplies across seven states in the United States and two states in Mexico. California has already offered to cut back on 400,000 acre feet of water, with 250,000 of that coming from the Imperial Valley. 
about 10% of its annual usage. One proposal from the Department of the Interior would cut up to 2 million acre feet in 2024 across three states, but doing so following strict water rights priority. This would hit hard in Arizona and Nevada, as well as major cities in California. So there's a very thin line to tiptoe between people getting their water and allowing farms to grow crops that are used to feed people. One slight wrinkle in all of this is that a lot of the water is used on alfalfa, which is extremely water intensive. Now, the easy thing to say there would be, okay, so let's stop using so much water on alfalfa. Then you factor in that alfalfa gets used to feed a lot of animals involved in agriculture in the U.S. So wherever we're cutting, it's not like it's just going to impact no one or no industry or no people. This is a really, really tough situation. Yeah, it is. It's, and it re- it's going to require a bunch of different solutions. I think it's not it's going to take a multifaceted approach. You know, is there a different crop or, you know, thing that we can feed animals involved in agriculture that is less water intensive, you know, or I'm assuming not because these guys are very, you know, everything is very methodical in, in farming and everything is thought out. But maybe there is something that's you know, much less water intensive and we can, you know, throw that in there instead, instead of, you know, spending so much water on alfalfa when the level of water is getting super, super critical. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And my counter would be, there probably are crops that are way less water intensive, but they probably cost a lot more. Mm. So this is where it comes back to, you know, instead instead of incentivizing just using less water, we can incentivize using different feed instead of alfalfa. Exactly. In theory, that would have similar outcome. Uh, I can't say the same in this hypothetical because I don't even know what crop we're talking about here. But, y- you know, like there are ways around this. Unfortunately, it seems like it's just going to have to come down to like someone somewhere along the way is going to be unhappy. But that's what it's going to take to have long-term health of the river. And again, this river is relied upon by 40 million people. Like this isn't something that's just, Hey, this group of 10 homes out in the middle of nowhere, we will have water sent to you from a different reservoir. Like this impacts so many people that you can't just pick up and have every single person who relies on it now rely on a different river. Like this water doesn't just come from nowhere. Exactly. All right, the next story is from Reuters, where Riham Alcuza writes, As Germany ends nuclear era, activists says there's still more to do. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from The Planet Today behind the scenes. Nick and I talking about this yesterday. (laughs) What do you make of the Germany situation right now, he asks. And I said, we could talk about it on the show. I think it's a little silly, TBH. And we're going to (laughs) get into that right now as to why I think it's a little silly. But first, let's give some context. Germany has closed its final three nuclear power reactors in the country. Um, This was a promise made by Chancellor Olaf Scholz back in December. So it's not a surprise, but let's talk first about how we got to this. Yeah, so Germany has used nuclear power for 60 years, but this has been protested by their Green Party basically the entire time. After the Fukushima disaster in Japan in 2011, Former German Chancellor Angela Merkel passed a law to stop using nuclear power by 2022. After the Fukushima disaster, an estimated 50,000 protesters in Germany formed a 45-kilometer-long or 27-mile-long human chain from Stuttgart to the Neckarvestheim nuclear plant and 
basically the Greens have been very against nuclear in part because they worried that German land could become a central battlefield if tensions between the U.S. and the USSR at the time during the Cold War ever became violent. This fear led to the party passing its first nuclear phase-out law back in 2002. And support for this remained high, so Angela Merkel chose to phase it out entirely towards the end of her tenure, with Olaf Scholz finally closing all plants. Some activists now see uranium fuel assemblies and uranium enrichment facilities as their next target for closing. So, long story short, Germans traditionally are anti-nuclear. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be an expert in German sociopolitical ideology or try to convince Germans to have a different outlook on nuclear. But what I will say is the timing of this sucks. And that's why when I texted Nick, I said, seems kind of silly. Germany's energy breakdown looks so different right now compared to what it did when Angela Merkel was chancellor. Germans are no longer using Russian oil. And with that, their use of coal has gone up tremendously since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So my question is, why not keep nuclear in the mix until you can replace it with renewables entirely? Like Germany is so committed to renewables. So I don't see the logic in going from, hey, we care about the planet. We care about the environment. We are going to go carbon free. And now what you're saying is we're going to phase out nuclear, which is carbon free. Whatever you want to say about like the byproducts, the, the nuclear byproducts, sure, but it's carbon-free. You're going from that to now the dirtiest of all fossil fuels in coal. So, like, if you're anti-nuclear, so be it. But the country has proven they are pro-carbon-free energy. So I feel like using the nuclear plants should have been extended until we can get to full carbon-free energy from solar and wind and hydropower, geothermal, you know, green hydrogen, all of those other things that are going to make up the piece of the energy pie in the next several decades. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you here. And Germany, uh, Germany's nuclear is only responsible for 6% of their total energy. And I just don't understand why you're taking something that is at least somewhat clean, you know, or like basically clean, and instead going for literally the most, the most dirty fossil fuel you can possibly choose. The numbers on this thing are insane, uh-huh. um, and you're just trying to do too much too quick. I know they don't like nuclear, and like like you said, we're not trying to like change their mind on that, but this was too fast. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, nuclear, it, it, it's so nuanced because all of the things we think about that go wrong, it's like Fukushima was built on a fault line. Yeah. You know, Ch- Chernobyl wasn't built well. Like, all of these things that we hear about nuclear fallout, nuclear disaster— they're from older facilities that were either built with older technology or like built in a bad location. Yeah. Nuclear today is so efficient, so clean. And I'm not going to say like there's no downsides, you know, and for Germany specifically, if they're worried about tensions between the U S and Russia, I get it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to tell them like they're wrong in what they're doing, but what I will say is I really think that closing down those plants should have and and could have been delayed. Yeah, agreed. I'm in complete agreement with you here. And why don't we get right into our next one, which is titled Wildlife Officials Warn of Drunk Birds by Liotta Gore of Al.com. Yeah, I I chuckled when I read the headline. This is actually a little more serious than I realized. So very quick story before we take a break. 
Wildlife officials in Georgia are warning of birds eating fruit that has started to rot and ferment. In the summer heat, fruit starts to rot and ferment. And when it ferments, it produces alcohol, which is then getting the birds drunk as they eat this fruit. Georgia's Department of Natural Resources released a statement saying the consumption of these fermented fruits can cause the birds to lose much of their coordination and capacity to fly. This can cause them to crash into windows and other obstacles. Sadly, they can also die from alcohol poisoning. They can also die of Nandina berries, a.k.a. sacred bamboo berries, which are a bright red fruit coming from an invasive plant. So if you see it, definitely feel free to remove it. The way Nick read that quote is exactly the way I read it, where I was like, all right, like they're losing a little bit of their flight. Like they're just getting a little drunk. Oh, they could die. Yeah. And it's just like the immediate like, oh, this is kind of fun. Oh, oh, shoot. (laughs) Yeah. So the reason we're bringing this up on the show isn't to just, you know, make a joke about it. It's to make people more aware. The best thing you can do if you see a drunken bird is to put out some water, help it rehydrate itself. This is currently, you know, going on in Georgia where this article is based out of. I'm assuming that means more of the U.S. South is feeling similar things. As other berries start to get hotter in the Northeast and the West, you know, like we might be seeing this more and more often, especially with climate change making the entire world hotter. So good thing to remember, if you see a bird struggling, best thing you can do to help it, give it some water. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. I never even thought like, I know like there's like the thing like bird bath. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I didn't put it together. Like birds drink water. Like I have all these birds (laughs) at home in my yard and my dad's got like a bird feeder, all this stuff. And I'm like, they're eating like sunflower seeds and stuff all day. What are they doing for water? Like, I can't think of any, you know, how far are they going to fly to go get water every day? It's just no idea. I have no clue now. And now I'm like very curious. I'm going to just look up after this. Like, how do birds get water? We're good for at least one. Like, we'll bring up a topic on the show. And then that's the thing I focus on for the next like three days. Just deep diving into like, how do birds get water? Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's uh, let's also go get some water. Take a quick break. When we come back, we got two more quick hits for you. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, sea levels rising rapidly in southern U.S. Study finds by Ben Adler of Yahoo News. 
Since 2010, the southern U.S. and specifically the southeastern U.S. has seen its sea level rise drastically quicker than projections. Sea levels along the Gulf Coast and the southern Atlantic coast have risen an average of one centimeter per year since 2010, which equals about five inches over the past 12 years. This is double the rate of the average global sea level rise over the same time period. The study that found this also found that hurricanes had a more severe impact because of higher sea levels. The University of Arizona's Jun Jun Yin said it turns out the water level associated with Hurricane Ian was the highest on record due to the combined effects of sea level rise and storm surge. High tide flooding has more than doubled on the Gulf Coast and Southeast Coast since the beginning of the century, according to NOAA. Recent years have also seen records for high tide flooding obliterated. So what we're seeing here is climate change impacting us now with more intense storms and greater damage because of those storms. Scientists from the University of Miami, NOAA, and NASA found that between 2015 to 2020, 30 to 50% of flood days in the southeastern U.S. were because of sea level rise. So, you know, this is the exact sort of stuff. And, And we're starting to hear this argument less and less, but it's been so prevalent for so long that people are like, well, why should I care about climate change? It's not going to impact me. It's going to impact my great, great grandkids. Mm -hmm. And and that was wrong at the time. It's still wrong now. But now what we're seeing is concrete evidence of, you know, between a third and half of the flood days in the Southeastern U S in a five year stretch recently were because of sea level rise. The sea level is rising because climate change is melting all of those glaciers The ice that is stored on land is now working its way into the oceans. Like all of these things are compounding and you're seeing hurricanes get worse. You're seeing flooding get worse on non-hurricane days. Like these all add up. That was the exact word I was going to use. Compounding. Compounding effects. This is something we never could have expected. Like, yeah, maybe we had considered it, but sea level rise contributing to storm to the severe impact of of hurricanes and and major storms like that has such terrible effects for like years down the line like and like it just goes to show you how much everything is just a domino away from you know like yeah just collapsing so you want to say that we have these minimal changes now with climate change sure go ahead i don't care but you can't say that in a couple of years we're going to see even worse effects and worse effects of climate change. And, and you're totally right. And I think the thing that frustrates me the most is like it's really easy to chalk it up and be like, well, this isn't going to impact me. But I, I don't know why we have to explain to people. And this expands so far beyond just environmental topics. But like I don't know why we have to convince people that you should care about other people. You know, like you shouldn't have to justify it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the most basic like human thing that we learn, like maybe in kindergarten, maybe in preschool, I should care about my neighbor. I should care about the person to my right, to my left. Yeah. And and it's like ingrained in society. And I don't know where it changes. Like, you know, like most major religions have some sort of tenant of like, be kind to your neighbor, treat your neighbor the way you'd want to be treated. And then you go into preschool and kindergarten. It's like, be nice to the person sitting next to you. Be nice to the other people in class, like be kind. And then all of a sudden at some point for some people, it just like a switch flips and it's like, Hey, 
you should care about climate change because it's going to impact you. It's going to impact other people a lot more, though. It's like, why? Why should I care about them? Like, what is the I don't know what the disconnect is, but at some point, like we just it just comes back to we are all better when we all do well. Yes. Agreed. And like you can say it's because, you know, we're not familiar with people's culture or something like that. And like, oh, I can't empathize with them because I don't know their culture and I don't know who they are. That's not a good reason. Learn, you know, like educate yourself, learn their culture. Yeah. Um, in order to understand them better. Ultimately, we're all the same people. We're all family oriented people who actually do care about people themselves, but we get like just disconnected from people for X, Y, and Z reason. And I always think about it like you're watching like a documentary. Like like we watched that documentary about like the Induit people in- it's Greenland. Greenland, thank you. I couldn't think of it. And I was like, these are people I don't think about on a daily basis, but seeing their struggle makes me realize like what they're going through and I empathize with them for that reason. So it's just about seeing the other side. Yeah, and, and you're 100% right. And, and I'll throw one thing out there. I'm guilty of this. This is not me being like, oh, I'm perfect. It shouldn't take us watching a documentary to be like, oh, I can empathize with those people because it, it, like, yeah. like we were saying earlier, we should just care and everyone should just care. But sometimes it takes seeing that. And, and that's where like, you know, you brought up like educate yourselves. A lot of it too is educating each other. Mm-hmm. Like we watched that movie, The Last Ice uh, sometime last year. If anyone else watched that movie with us, great. You know, those are people who might not have seen it otherwise. And that's at least three people who can now emphasize with another group. So, yeah, you know, that was a big long rant of me and you going on about morals. But like this all comes back to sea level rise. And if you are living up on a hill in Vermont right now thinking, well, what happens in Florida doesn't impact me for now. Sure. Technically true. (laughs) But like, you know, on this the selfless side of things. It shouldn't take that on the selfish side of things. Where do you think people are going to go when their houses are flooded? Because they're not going to go into more floodplains. They're going to come up on your hill. Yeah, I think I think the the best thing said about climate change is it's not a matter of if it's when climate change shows up on your doorstep. It's just a matter of time. Exactly. And before we move on to the last story, I'm sure when we're talking about numbers, somebody might be thinking, it was only a few centimeters of sea level rise per year. Like, what's the big deal? In low-lying coastal regions, an increase of even a few centimeters in the background sea level can break the regional flooding thresholds and lead to coastal inundation, according to this study that this article was based on. Yeah, so a lot to think about there. Hopefully we weren't too ranty, but I think we got our points across, which is good. It felt deep. Nice. Good stuff. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is by Nadia Popovich and Brad Plummer, who write a key part of America's plan to slash carbon emissions. Plug in everything for the New York Times. Most of the energy in the U.S. comes from fossil fuel combustion, and experts are increasingly saying that the best way to combat climate change is to change that and electrify just about everything. Cars, heating systems, and factories that run on solar, wind, or nuclear do not produce carbon emissions, and producing zero emissions by 2050 is one of President Biden's main goals as a president. Electric versions of the things we use today are usually more efficient, so the model in this article predicts more energy coming from electricity in the future. 
but also less energy being used just in general. The main example I think of when I hear that is how electric vehicles are like 80% efficient, but gas powered cars use only about 30% of all of the gasoline they burn to actually move the car. Yeah, and that's exactly what the article says too. But that trend applies to other electric systems like heat pumps instead of boilers for heating and hot water, stuff like that. Yeah, so some good news about those things that Nick just brought up is the Biden administration has proposed regulations that we talked about last week to bump electric vehicle sales up to two-thirds of all new cars sold in the U.S. by 2032. Electric heat pumps outsold gas furnaces for the first time ever last year, and a new climate law is providing billions of dollars in subsidies to accelerate this transition. The challenge here will be replacing over 280 million gasoline-powered cars and 200 million home appliances that run on natural gas, such as furnaces, water heaters, stoves, and dryers. Some people might find this cost prohibitive, some people might not be interested in general, and some might see difficulties in electrifying an industry like commercial trucking. And the other thing here is that the electricity needs to come from somewhere and specifically, it needs to come from renewables or nuclear instead of fossil fuels to like really feel the impacts of electrification. It's getting harder to connect renewables to our old, outdated electric grid. So this is going to take a national infrastructure overhaul. Another challenge comes in flying, where like the batteries that we use today to power electric cars, for example, are just too bulky to power commercial airlines. Like We would need huge batteries to power a plane. So what we're going to need is alternative fuels, which can be pricey or better batteries. Yeah. And some challenges for residential homes and apartment buildings can come from costs of electrification while natural gas is as cheap as it is currently. The gas industry is fighting back against electrification. And this article says that many contractors are still unfamiliar with the newer heat pump technology. Something interesting the article points out also that I had never considered before is how utilities operate and plan. So they plan for peak electrical usage in the summer when people are running air conditioners. And the way they do that is basically just storing natural gas in excess, knowing that they're going to be using more in those summer months. If we electrify everything, demand would soar in the winter as homes use more electricity for heat. There is less solar energy produced in the winter. And it's harder to store extra electricity right now than it would be to store that extra natural gas. Yeah. And the last thing we want to point out is the need for more transmission lines. To accommodate for all of the electricity that we need, utilities would need to build large new power lines across the country. Transmission projects are hard to build typically, but the clean energy transition requires better transmission. Yeah, so two ways to address that transmission issue, aside from just more power lines, are utilities getting better at planning when electric vehicles and other appliances are going to get charged so that they don't all power up at the same time and put a huge strain on the infrastructure. Um, The other way would be more battery storage to store that extra electricity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a tough one because we're not going to be able to just electrify everything automatically. It's going to take like we just said, a lot of, you know, infrastructure work and a lot of, I think also education too, in terms of like letting the contractors get familiar with that, like heat pump technology or how to install X, Y, and Z, you know? So I think there is a lot of upscaling we need to do on, on a lot of fronts. Uh, and I think that'll just kind of come with time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, luckily we, we have the incentives to do it. We have the government programs to do it. 
I wish we had more time, but we do have time to to implement this. You know, it's 2023 right now. I think 2035 is when most things are supposed to be electrified. Yeah. Like we have 12 years. We need to get started now and start to get some of the bigger, like more heat pumps, more electric cars, get that started now. But, you know, we have time to really start to phase this in and they're only going to get cheaper. They're only going to get more efficient. The batteries are only going to get better. So yes, that's not to say let's wait until they are better, but we're trending in the right direction. So Matteo Muratori of NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, points out that electrification also improves air quality, reduces waste, avoids pollution, and is more efficient. So it's not just about reducing fossil fuel usage here to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It's just all around better to electrify. Yeah, definitely. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check it out. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.